This presentation is a summary of legal principles. Nothing in this presentation constitutes legal advice, which can only be obtained as a result of a personal consultation with an attorney. The information published here is believed accurate at the time of publication, subject to change, and does not purport to be a complete statement of all relevant issues. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Friends with Employee Benefits and HR. Can't forget the HR. As you know, this podcast is about keeping you all abreast of what's new in the world of benefits and human resources. I am Jeff Cross, your host. And, um, and we're, t- we're tackling yet another trending topic uh, in the workplace. Today's podcast is on the Me Too movement and how that imp- impacts the workplace and, and employers. So, uh, and this is, an, uh, is a very timely topic, uh, just some, some points of fact here to get us going. According to the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, 87 to 94% of individuals who are harassed do not file a claim. And that's a staggering statistic. So your workplace culture has the most significant impact on harassment whether that's letting it flourish or preventing it uh, by encouraging people to, to speak out. Uh, we have a great guest uh, for this podcast. I'm very excited to welcome Mary Gambardella. Mary's a partner at Wigan and Dana. Uh, she joins us today to talk about the Me Too movement. So uh, Mary, I'm just going to toss it over to you. Why don't you uh, take a little, uh, just a minute to explain uh, your role at Wigan and Dana and the services that uh, Wigan and Dana offers. So Wigan and Dana is a full-service firm, and I am chair of our Labor, Employment, and Benefits Department. And our department handles every aspect of employee relations. We focus on defensive management, meaning that we work with employers 98% of the time. And our practice traverses every area, such as litigation, advice and counsel, handbooks, policies, postings, employee agreements, uh, traditional labor issues such as strikes and collective bargaining. Uh, We also have under the umbrella of labor and employment and benefits, the immigration role uh, that we play for employers. And I would be remiss not to mention our benefits practice where we handle employer benefit plans, ERISA issues, and anything else related to employees and the benefits they may enjoy in the workplace. So you're not kidding when you say full service. In full, service. <laughs> full service. Sure. Did you leave anything out there? That I was... don't think so. <laughs> okay, great. Well, thanks for being here, Mary. Uh, My pleasure. Thank listen, you yeah, uh, let's set the stage. So, and, and I got to ask, how did the Me Too movement actually come about? So if you have not been living under a rock or in a cave anywhere, most people would know that the Me Too movement started in Hollywood with the publication of allegations about the casting couch and how celebrities were forced to endure all types of sexual harassment um, to have their careers proceed and how some people alleged that because they refused to submit, their careers were stonewalled and opportunities were gone. And it did not take long for social media to be saturated with information about the Me Too movement. And that's basically how it started. 
But like everything out in social media, it ultimately trickles into the workplace, mm. which is where we come in with our topic today. Right, right. But I guess we point to, to, to that as an example where social media ultimately is having a, a, a positive impact. And I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole of, of uh, social media and the value or, 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 or lack thereof of it. But uh, so it's something good coming from social media and something good coming from initially uh, Hollywood. And, and actually, I wasn't aware that that's what, the, what initiated it. So learn something new every day. So what's the result been? I mean, how, how has the Me Too movement impacted our lives? In the workplace, with awareness being raised once again, and I say once again because this type of awareness was triggered a long time ago with the, the Anita Hill hearings. And so um, depending on how old our members of the audience are, some of them might remember the Anita Hill hearings where she was asked to testify during the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings. And that is when people started to learn that sexual harassment is way more than have sex with me or else in the workplace, that it includes innuendo, flirtation, unwanted touchings, and all kinds of subtle activity that in the aggregate can constitute sexual harassment. What Me Too did is stir again the awareness that people had about how pervasive this kind of activity still is in some areas of, of certain workplaces. And so immediately, employers were trying to be proactive understanding how this movement would be trickling into the workplace. And legislatures became proactive with bolstering legislation that had already existed about sexual harassment policies and required postings, which expanded training requirements, um, which had employers being more aware of their obligations to investigate and take remedial action with internal sexual harassment complaints. And of course, there was a significant uptick in complaints to the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission and the comparable state agencies which handle these kinds of complaints. So that's how things have started to happen uh, in my area. Yeah, I think that the operative word there may be started because I kind of go back to that statistic that I referenced in the in the opening here, 87 and 94% of individuals still not filing a complaint. So there's a lot of a lot of work to do uh, still. Um, and, and here's where I'm going to probably go off script a little bit already, but you, you, you've mentioned Hollywood uh, and I guess politics uh, being, you know, going back to the Anita Hill case. Are there other uh, industries that seem to be more prone to sexual harassment than others? I think that there are industries that are a little slower to institute the training and the investigation uh, procedures and the stronger, more robust policies than others. And so I would be hesitant to identify them, 
Uh, however, I would say that is true of certain industries. They've been a bit slower. The more, I would say, corporate type environments have been faster, more proactive than others. Mm, yeah, interesting. Um, it, well, I, I guess I might have gotten ahead of myself a little bit here because we wanted to talk about the fact that uh, that the Me Too movement, we've all heard of, I mean, you and I know that that sexual harassment happens in the workplace, but I mean, most people are, I guess, more familiar with it in terms of that, that old casting couch, you know, the entertainment business and with celebrities. So let's kind of peel away that onion a little bit more uh, about the workplace, the corporate America and the workplace outside of Hollywood and the entertainment business. So the kinds of cases that we have seen and we continue to see range from relationships with superiors that start consensually and then go south. Mm -hmm. And there is conduct post breakup, if you will, that could start to look like sexual harassment. So it ranges from that type of sexual harassment claim, which is known in our world as quid pro quo, mm -hmm. to claims of hostile environment, which are comprised of the jokes and the flirtations uh, sexual images via email and so forth. And there are environments where that still is prevalent. And the reason for that, I believe, is that employers sometimes are a bit too dismissive about the impact of that activity on workers. So what Me Too has actually accomplished is to remind employers of the seriousness of this type of activity. And again, as I've mentioned before, Jeff, the legislature has been very active in reminding employers of their obligations and expanding their obligations. Just to give you an example, here in Connecticut, the Connecticut legislature had required any employer with 50 or more employees to provide two hours of sexual harassment training to all supervisory personnel. Well, in, in response to the Me Too movement, the legislature recently passed in June of this year an expanded statute which required employers with three mm. or more employees to train everyone. And any employer with even less than three has to train their supervisors for the two hours. Wow. So that impacts every employer in the state of Connecticut, even those with one right. employee. Right. And so that's an example of how the legislature has responded. And in our neighboring states, for example, New York, the legislature has been very active mm. with passing legislation about the required content of sexual harassment policies, postings, and the training requirements as well. What about, uh, so you referenced the Connecticut, New York, some state, uh, some actions at the state level, but what about federally? So federally, they have not passed a training requirement, but there certainly has been an inclination to start talking about sexual harassment and laws on the federal level. Now, let me just add this. The law that prohibits sexual harassment is there is a federal law, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So that prohibition has been in place for a very long yeah. time. 
and most states have state statutes that model Title VII protection. So there has been a federal law in place for decades that prohibits discrimination on a variety of protected bases and prohibits sexual harassment. So far, the federal legislature has not passed any legislation that has expanded those protections. It has been mostly activities by the state. So back to the state level, is there anything new, anything you know, in the pipeline in the state of Connecticut specifically uh, that, that we should uh, be aware is coming down the pike? Well, actually, so the statute that was just passed in June, which mm -hmm. takes effect October 1 of this year, Got it. has, in our view, completed the activity by the Connecticut legislature. However, um, with this expanded obligation to train, my instinct is to say that the complaints that will be lodged with the Connecticut Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities will necessarily increase if employers do not comply with these training requirements. Well, and not, not only that, but you know, the training also just is good for increasing awareness. So won't that, hopefully that's gonna impact the, the number of people who are willing to come forward and complain about this kind of activity, this behavior. So training, the training requirement is, in my view, a very positive one yeah. for several reasons. One is, employers should welcome the opportunity to flesh out complaints internally so they don't go outside the organization. And training helps them educate the workforce about what does and does not constitute sexual harassment. And when you increase knowledge, you increase empowerment, and then you increase the ability to flesh out these things before they become external complaints, including in courts. So that's one reason training is always a positive thing in my view. With the expansion to the larger work base, um, non-supervisors, lower numbers of employees that are required to trigger the training requirement, I think that will just have a ripple effect to increase mm -hmm. the positive impact of training. Right and maybe hopefully um, uh, sort of eliminate some of the, I mean, has there been stigma attached with speaking out? The whole Me Too movement's about have a voice, speak out, let's stop being silent about this. So does training help sort of help in that regard is to give people the, the courage uh, and take away some of that if there was any stigma of, of, of saying something? I think it does to some extent, but Jeff, there is always going to be fears of not so much stigma as retaliation. Oh, yeah. And while retaliation is equally prohibited under all these operative laws, retaliation either for bringing a complaint, participating in a complaint, cooperating with an investigation, all of those aspects are covered under the law. There will always be a fear that if you bring a complaint, there will be some form of retaliation, whether it be outright adverse action or what you might call a stigma, um, where people are gossiping about you, afraid to speak with you, afraid to deal with you because they're concerned about you being litigious, mm. let's say. 
The only way a company can try to fight that fear is in showing people how they take these complaints seriously. And what I mean by that is you investigate every complaint, mm -hmm. you do an adequate and thorough investigation, you don't pre-screen complaints, and remedial action is fair, and the quote, punishment fits the crime, end quote. Can I interrupt for a second? Sure. I'm sorry. So what do you mean pre-screen pre complaints? So what, what? what I mean is that too often, when a complaint is brought forward either to a supervisor, who should always be a mandated reporter under a company's policy, or to a human resource executive uh, or representative within a company, sometimes the initial reaction is to say, I know the people involved, and maybe if I just try to deal with it myself, we don't have to escalate this. Uh, and that's what I mean by pre-screening. Instead of complaints. going through a formal process. Exactly. Right, right. Yeah. Every, everything should be investigated. Yeah neutrally and without a preconceived notion about the validity or the credibility of people. That doesn't mean that credibility doesn't come into play, but what it means is you don't predetermine how you're going to investigate or if you're going to investigate by predetermining credibility. Right, right. Yeah. Based on what you think you know about people yeah. in the workplace. And I will tell you that if your employees see that after complaints are lodged, people are suddenly exited or resign, that is going to have an, an effect of chilling people's willingness to come forward. The optic will be you complain, you end up losing your job. Mm. Which ultimately is illegal for the employer to 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 do that. Absolutely, yeah. if it's retaliatory, yeah. if there's adverse action, which is well defined and well fleshed out by the courts, then the investigative process and the complaint procedure is ultimately rendered useless. Yeah. So um, I, I guess just to kind of make this, hopefully what we've got is a lot of HR professionals listening here, right? And so if we could just say almost, I'm an employer in the state of Connecticut. Someone files a complaint about sexual harassment. If you could kind of step by step, what do I do now? How do you respond? Are we speaking internally or they go external or both? Uh, let's say internal. So, the, right. so the complaint's been made internal. The complaint's been made internally. If it, if it goes to a managerial employee, then again, under the policy and practice of the company, that manager should be a man, mandated reporter. There should be someone beyond the manager who is de a designated recipient of, of the complaint and should be the investigator. The manager, the people in the department should not be the investigators. And then that should ultimately go, let's say there's an on-site HR professional, HR representative, that person should then undertake an investigation by first determining what is the scope and nature of this complaint, who are the witnesses I should interview, and then go from there. And that should be the first step. And the investigation should be well-documented and 
the procedure should there be thereafter be that some recommendations are made and discussed with the business line about appropriate remedial action. So, um, you know, there's reference to, to the handbook, to policies and procedures. So if I'm hearing you correctly, I mean, step number one is that an employer has to have formal policies in place, do they not? Let me answer it this way. New York now requires it. Best practice has been historically, and we have been advising clients for decades to have a written policy that states we do not discriminate, we provide equal employment opportunities, and we prohibit sexual harassment. Providing examples of what sexual harassment looks like, providing a complaint procedure that provides employees with multiple avenues of complaint, and promises an investigation and prompt remedial action. So the absence of such a policy, even where it is not required by a specific statute, will hurt you in defense in defending against a sexual harassment complaint where you cannot use the defense of we didn't know and didn't have any reason to know this was going on. Yeah, yeah. Does this get more difficult for a smaller group? So in Connecticut, they've expanded, expanded the mandatory training to uh, three or more employees for all employees. And, but you, know, you get to a three-person uh, employer and they might not, they probably don't have an, an HR person, uh, you know, uh, they, and, and does the process get more difficult the smaller the employer? It is difficult because of the lack of critical mass within the organization to yeah. deal with it, for sure. However, there are options even to the yeah. smallest employer. And we often hear from small employers, we're like a family. Yeah. We don't need this. Hmm. This is not necessary. Our employees love working here. And my response is consistently, the smaller you are, the more you need it. Because managing people's expectations is extremely important. So small employers can go to outside consultants or lawyers to investigate. I have personally been asked to come into organizations to be the investigator. Now that can be a little more expensive, but when you measure the risk of not doing it right versus the alternative, that risk assessment, I can tell you, will always weigh in favor of spend a little now, be proactive, do it right. Because we can't guarantee you won't get sued. Right. But what we can tell you is, when you do it right, in the, in the unfortunate event it goes beyond your organization, it goes into an administrative agency's process and or a judicial process, that you'll be able to defend yourself that much better yeah. because you did it right. Yeah, yeah, and and just you know, in the case of a small employer, you can't find anyone of if there's three employees of of, of the organization. How do you find an an objective person to do the investigation? That's exactly my point. Right. Yeah. In a three, four, five, six person organization, who's the objective investigator? So, Mary, if, if we were to give one takeaway, what's the most important thing that, that uh, people should take from this episode? What do you think it would be? Sexual harassment still exists. Companies are getting better. Some companies are getting much better at identifying and being proactive, much better at understanding obligations, 
in terms of policies, investigation, and remedial action. But it's still out there. And if employers do not take this seriously, I tell my clients all the time, it's not a matter of if, it's when. If you have one employee, one employee, two employees, three employees, or 3,000 employees, you will have to defend against a claim of some type. And one of the hardest types, one of the most expensive types, is sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the penalties can be very severe. And it's too easy, yeah. in my view. Now, some employers may say, she's nuts. There's nothing easy about this. But to me, all you have to do is have a policy and think about the process. Who would we have to be the designated recipient of this type of complaint or any type of complaint? Mm. And who we have to come in and investigate? Yep. And that to me is easier, much easier than the alternative. And for the small employers, these can be bet the company types of litigation. Before we conclude the episode, we always like to kind of uh, try to get to know our guests a little bit better with some rapid fire. So, so get ready for this. Oh you boy. ready? Oh, you sure. I think so. I promise you, I wouldn't ask football questions. Ask because me about cases. <laughs> That's easier. How, how about this? Um, uh, red wine or white wine? I'm not a wine drinker. Oh, I'm off to a bad Sparkling start. Wine. Sparkling wine. Sparkling wine. White or champagne. Okay. All right. Uh, favorite movie? Favorite comedy is Arthur. Favorite drama is Godfather. If you're stranded on, a, on an island and you can only have one flavor of ice cream, chocolate or vanilla, what's it gonna be? Chocolate. All right, I'm with you on that one. And finally, if you weren't doing what you do now, what would you be doing? I would be, I would be a teacher. Awesome. Well, you were a teacher today, that's for sure. <laughs> and a good one, thank you. Thank you. Mary Gambardella, uh, Wigan and Dana, Everyone, thank you for being with us. Uh, stay up to date with local and state legislation and check out the compliance section of our Fresh Thinking blog, uh, which can be found at onedigital.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you have to stay up to date. Things change rapidly in this business and benefits and human resource. So subscribe to the podcast. We don't want you to miss the next episode when it drops. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'm Jeff Cross, your host of Friends with Employee Benefits and HR.